Good morning. Turn in your Bibles with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 6. If you've been following uh, your worship guide, you might notice that it says the sermon is our peace and the resurrection from Romans 4 and 5. That was last week. Uh, Kevin preached that sermon last week, and I can't do that again this week. I couldn't preach it like Kevin did. So we are moving on uh, this week to Romans 6. So if you would stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been free from sin, set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, how we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that we serve a risen Christ. We thank you that we can come together as brothers and sisters, saints made right with you because of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you speak to our hearts this morning? Would you open your word afresh to us and would you change us? It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> We've been focusing for the last three weeks or so on the resurrection of Christ. And today we celebrate that glorious, marvelous resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was raised bodily from that grave, never to die again, to live forever. And he is even now at the right hand of his Father in heaven in bodily form. We will be raised with him one day. That home in heaven will be ours when he comes for us. So we would say this morning, even so, come Lord Jesus, even before this service is ended. 
Three weeks ago, Kevin shared with us the promises of the resurrection foretold by those who believed in those promises. Is that not a beautiful picture, by the way, on the screen? You know, when those women came to that tomb this, uh, that morning, they didn't expect to see that. They expected a stone there, and how were they going to get in there? But that's what they found. What a beautiful picture. Sorry, that's an aside. Uh, two weeks ago, I guess, Wes went through with us the promises of the resurrection, or the proofs of the resurrection. Many people saw the Lord Jesus Christ after he was resurrected, and they believed. We have documented proof of the resurrection of our Lord. Wes reminded us in that sermon of the personal devotion and obedience that that resurrection calls for. Obedience to the risen King. Last week then, Kevin talked to us about the peace that is provided by the resurrection. We who, are belie- we who believe in Jesus Christ are justified by faith and we have peace with God. Are we not grateful that we stand on this side of the resurrection and see those things, can look back and see what that resurrection wrought? God has revealed to us by the resurrection that Jesus is alive and even now at the right hand of his Father. And because he has risen, those of us who believe in him will be raised to join him. We look forward to that great resurrection one day, don't we? The resurrection of our Lord is an assurance that God was satisfied with the sacrifice of his son. And based on that, he could justify us, forgive our sins, and give us eternal life. The life he gives us will include the resurrection of our bodies. Today, our subject is the power of that resurrection, not only to resurrect our bodies, but to produce in us that personal devotion and obedience that Wes talked about. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ made it possible for us to have life. There is no true life without Jesus. The resurrection makes a difference to us for all eternity. We could spend the rest of our time this morning talking about what that will be like in eternity. But that's a subject for another day. The subject for today is the power of living. The power that we have for living today, right here. What difference does it make that Christ was raised from the dead? What difference does that make today? What difference does the power of Christ's resurrection make in our everyday lives? It's a critical topic because it makes a difference what kind of life we lead. The difference that the resurrection makes today should determine how we face every difficult challenge that comes our way. It should determine how we treat each other at home, at school, in the classroom, and at church. The difference that the resurrection makes 
should affect every decision that we make in our lives. The reason is that not only do we believe in Christ and are justified, but we are connected to him. We'll talk in a couple of minutes about a couple of ways that we are connected to him, but first, the connection itself. When we come to Christ by faith, we are united to him spiritually in an intimate way. We are placed in Christ. That's a theme for our text today, and it's really the theme for the entire New Testament. It's an eternal, unbroken bond established by God, and it's a bond that's even stronger than the the bond between you and your wife or you and your family. It's a bond that makes you a different person. In our text for today, Paul wants to tell us about what happens as a result of that unity, that bond. What difference does that unity make in how we live our lives every day? Does it make any difference? And if there really is a difference, what produces that difference within us? God produces that difference. Coming to Christ means that God changes our lives. We are different people when we become Christians. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. He's a new person. Being in Christ is the key that makes the difference. Paul emphasizes that difference in Romans 6 for us, and he, and he really unpacks it. The first five chapters of the book of Romans tell us about that hopeless condition that we were in and what God did for us to change that condition. The beginning of the book talks about the depth of depravity in which every man and woman finds themselves. We, we inherit that depravity from Adam. Chapter 5, verse 18 says, through one man's transgression, and that's Adam's, condemnation came upon all men. So we are guilty of sin, both by inheritance from Adam and unfortunately by our practice every day. But Paul reminds us that by one man's obedience, that was Christ, we were made right with God, we were justified, declared to be righteous by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Kevin led us through that last week. We can only have the guilt of sin removed in Christ. By faith in Christ, beloved, that guilt is removed. Our sins are forgiven and we are brought into unity with Jesus Christ. Justification removes the guilt and the penalty of sin. Christ bore it. He paid the penalty for our sin. He removed it as far as the east is from the west. We no longer are in bondage to sin. We're set free. But it doesn't remove the presence of sin, does it? We know all too well 
that sin is present with us. Paul says in Romans 7, sin dwells in me. But the glorious gospel of God's grace tells us that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Paul tells us that at the close of chapter 5. Well, we might think to ourselves then, I'm so grateful that grace abounds because I know I'm going to sin, so I'll just have to try as hard as I can not to sin. I'll just do my best. You know the problem with doing your best? The best of men are men at best, and men have sin dwelling within them. So trying harder doesn't get us where we want to be, does it? Trying harder just doesn't work. How many times have we said, I'm not going to speak harshly to my wife or my kids anymore? Or I'm not going to criticize my husband in front of anybody else. Or I'm not going to cheat at work or at school or at play or on my taxes or in my giving at church. Or I'm not going to look at those inappropriate images anymore. Or I'm not going to covet what my neighbor has. But as hard as we try, we fail again over and over, don't we? There has to be something else besides trying harder. Praise God, there is something else. Paul has some very good news for us in chapter 6. After justification, and we talked about last week, there is sanctification. We've been told what God has done for us. Chapter 6 tells us about what God is doing in us. God has done something for us that we can't do for ourselves in justifying us, making us right with him. And he's doing something in us that we can't do for ourselves either. Paul wants to know what God has done, and he wants us to know what God is doing in us in Christ. In chapter 6, Paul's teaching us something about the sanctification process. God is working in us, beloved, to produce the likeness of Jesus Christ himself. We are being molded to be righteous, not just positionally, but practically. Day by day, God is working in us. Sanctification involves the work of God, just like justification is the work of God. The power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is available to us to keep us from sin. Both righteousness and sanctification come from God. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, You are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Chapter 6 tells us about the work of God to make sinners whom he declared righteous and holy to become holy 
every day in how we live, in all manner of our lives, Paul tells us what this new person, this new creation is supposed to look like. And he tells us there's something better than just trying hard. Paul tells us something that we ought to know and we ought to understand. And he uses some questions to help us. Paul asks a huge question there in verse 1 about what kind of life we're to live and what determines that kind of life. He probably asked that question because of the statement he just made about where sin abound, uh, abounds, grace much more abounds. He probably asked that question because he knows the frailty of our human hearts. Paul asks a question there that many might anticipate and some might answer in a very wrong and dangerous way. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The reason that question is dangerous is that some might get the idea that if grace is going to abound where sin abounds, then we ought to just go on sinning. Maybe even sin more so that grace could abound more. Might not God's grace shine more brightly if we sinned more? Might glorify God more if we just continued in sin. Let's make God's grace look even better. That's a very warped and dangerous way to think, and it's absolutely wrong. If we have been made right with God by faith, if we've been justified, as Kevin assured us last week, if we've been given a new heart, if we are changed people, if we've been given a desire for holiness in our lives, if all of those things have happened to us, can we go on sinning? Does that, does that personal devotion and obedience that Wes talked about allow us to go on sinning? Does the gospel and what God has done change our lives? Or does it not? Paul, I guess, might be open to an antinomian charge here that he doesn't care about the law, doesn't care about right living, but Paul cares about right living. We know that by the answer that he gives us immediately here in chapter 6. What's the answer to Paul's question? Can we continue in sin? He answers his own question. By no means. Certainly not. May it never be. God forbid. His answer is that it can never happen that we continue in sin. How can we even think that way? To continue in sin would be a huge contradiction with who we are and what's happened to us. If we're justified by God through faith in Christ, then we do not continue in sin that grace might abound. A justified sinner cannot continue in sin. The thought of just letting ourselves go and continuing to sin should never enter our minds. But Paul doesn't leave it there. Paul wants to emphasize to us why he gave the answer that we cannot continue in sin. He wants to be sure nobody misunderstands this. In fact, he's saying, if you think that you can go on sinning, you have sadly misunderstood this. 
So he asks another question. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer in it? Well, wait a minute, Paul. Dead to sin? Are you saying that I don't sin or that sin's not a temptation to me? You don't know, you don't know me, Paul. Dead to sin? Not me. I sin every day. I want to do better. And I try hard. But the temptations come and I fall. I guess I'm just weak. Attitudes and thoughts that aren't godly enter my mind. Words that are harsh and hateful and critical come out of my mouth before I think. Actions come forth that I deeply regret. A lot of times, Paul, I just seem to be losing this battle against sin. What do you mean, Paul? I'm dead to sin. Doesn't seem that way to me. How can it be that I'm dead to sin? Well, Paul anticipates that kind of thinking. He anticipates that question. And he answers with another question about what we understand about what's happened to us when we become Christians. He asks the question as if it's certainly something we ought to know and that would make a real difference. Paul wants to remind us of one of the ways that I mentioned earlier that we're connected to Christ. Paul says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Paul says we are intimately connected to Christ in his death. Verses 3, 4, 5, 6, and 8 all say we died with Christ. Verse 3, baptized into his death. Verse 4, buried with him into death. Verse 5, united with him in death. Verse 6, crucified with him. Verse 8, I died with Christ. Do you get the point there? Paul's really emphasizing our death with Christ. We are united to Christ in his death. How did that happen? Well, Paul says when we were baptized by God into Christ, we were placed in Christ. We were identified with him. When, when we baptize, we usually talk about baptism meaning identification, and it does. Baptism into Christ is a spiritual union with Christ. It's identification with Christ. Think baptized into him, united to him, placed in him, identified with him. All those are the same thing. Think in Christ. God views that union with Christ as an eternal bond that is never broken. When we're united to Christ, What's true of him in his death is true of us. God views us as having died with Jesus Christ. So Paul can say in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. The union that we have with Jesus Christ, this, this identification is something we need to get a very good grasp on, beloved. It's that union and his power from which comes power over sin. 
Paul's talking about a spiritual reality for believers in, G in Jesus Christ. He's talking about how God sees his children. Baptism into Christ is a reality. It takes place on the inside when we become Christians. When we baptize a new believer with water, we are picturing that miracle that has taken place in his life. God performed that when he baptized us into Christ, uniting us with Christ. So Galatians 3, 27 and 28 says, as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We are one in Christ. We were sinners in Adam, but now we are in Christ. When Christ died, we died with him. We were buried with him into death. Verse 7 says, he, who's died, he who died has been freed from sin. And then in verse 11, Christ died once for all and we're united to him. So as a result of this, what's our relationship to sin now? How did we die to sin? We died to sin with the death of Christ and our identification with Christ. All united to Christ have died to sin because Christ died to sin. As he died, we died. And when we died with him, we were set free from enslavement to sin. But we're not only connected to him in his death, we're connected to him in his life. Paul goes on to say here that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we also might walk in newness of life. If we've been united with Christ in his death, then we've been united with him in his life as well. Verses 4, 5, and 8 also say we were made alive with him. Verse 4, as Christ was raised, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse 8, we shall live with him. Paul's emphasizing that point just as strongly. Paul goes on to say in the Galatians 2 package, uh, passage I quoted a minute ago, not only I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless, I live. I live because of Christ's life as well. Ephesians 2 also tells us that God has raised us up and seated us together in heavenly places with Christ. We're united in his death. We're united in his life. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, the moment we become Christians, we are dead, completely dead to the reign of sin. We are out of sin's territory altogether. We must differentiate between what's true of our position as a fact and our experience. What he says is that every person in this world at this minute is either under the reign and rule of sin or else under the reign and rule of grace. It's either one or the other. He cannot have a foot in each position. He is either in Adam or in Christ, unquote. Christ's death led to resurrection and a brand new life. We died with Christ so that we could live a brand new life. And our union with Christ must lead us to a new life, a new life 
with resurrection power. There's a new life in us, beloved, because he has a new life. He rose from the dead. We were united with him. And there is a new life that has freed us from the power of sin over us. Verses 6 and 7 say that we died with Christ so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing or rendered powerless so that we would not be slaves to sin because he who died has been freed from sin. That old master doesn't rule anymore. Verse 6 says, our old self was crucified. Well, what's that old self or that old man? It's the old you, your old personality, the, the person that you were. Um, that's not old in the sense of age like I am. You young believers have an old man too. The old self is the unregenerate man, the unborn man, the one who was depraved, the one who was a, who was a slave to sin. And that phrase old is not really meant in the sense of old age. It's meant in the sense of worn out, used up, ready to be thrown away. What happened to that old man, that, that worn out man, the one who's ready to be thrown away? Paul tells us that old man is crucified. He's dead. Colossians 3, 9 says, you have put off the old man. He's put off because we died with Christ. That old man died with Christ. Well, often it doesn't seem like the old man is dead, does it? Well, what's going on here? The old man's really dead, but it doesn't seem that way. Well, Paul seems to separate the old man from the body of sin. Paul says that the old self or the old man has been killed so that the, the body of sin might be done away with or brought to nothing or rendered powerless so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Well, what does Paul mean by that? Are the old man and the, the body of sin it's the same thing or something different. The old man is dead, but the body of sin still seems to be around. So what is this body of sin that remains, but that's rendered powerless or brought to nothing? It's that, it's that sin that dwells within us, folks. It's that sin that expresses our itself in our bodies, in our members, as Paul puts it. Paul is saying here, I think the same thing he says in Romans 7, when he says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's the new man. But I see another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. That's the old body of sin. Don't get the idea it's talking about the physical body itself. The, the body's not inherently sinful. Folks thought that at one time, but it's not. There's nothing wrong with feeding your body, eating. There's nothing wrong with comforting your body with air conditioning or any other uh, number of physical desires. 
But there is a sinful influence that remains within us, and it attempts to make us use our bodies, the members of our body, as instruments of sin. That's why Paul tells us in the rest of chapter 6 not to present our members as instruments to sin, to unrighteousness. But that's another day's discussion. The sin that remains in us is an influence or that law of sin, Paul calls it, that tries to get us to express that through our bodies, to obey its desires. We might say it's like a a wicked dictatorship that's been thrown out of power, but there are pockets of guerrilla fighters and they're still waging war against the new power but they don't rule anymore. They're not in power anymore. They might fight, but they cannot control. They do not reign. Just as sin has no power over Christ, it has no power over us, beloved. In Christ, we have been delivered from the reign of sin. We are free from the power of sin over us. When we're in Christ, the reign of sin is broken because Christ died to sin and we died to sin with him. That doesn't mean that sin's no longer within you. Please understand that. Don't uh, think that it doesn't have influence on you. You know well that it does. But sin can no longer dictate to you. It cannot reign over you. If you died with Christ, you are free from sin. It means that though you, you might obey it, it means that though you will obey it sometimes, the fact remains you don't have to obey it. You don't have to sin anymore. Wow, what a thought. Paul says, understand that that old man you were is dead. You are a new man. Let's make sure we know who he's talking about here. This is for believers in Christ. That's not true of the rest of humanity. The Bible is written to those who by faith in Jesus Christ have been made new creatures. Without the power of the cross and the power of the resurrection... Without being in Christ, we are slaves to sin. Sin so ruled over us at one time that we couldn't resist it. And you know, even at that, at that time in the old man, we really didn't see it as so bad anyway. We were under its control. But sin can no longer domineer you. It cannot reign over you. We have the power of the resurrected Christ to resist sin. Believers who've been placed in Christ are freed from the power of sin over us. The old man, the the I, the the person you were that was united to the body of sin, he, he was a slave to that sin. We might say that the body of sin owned him. It was sin's body. It was the master in the unregenerate state over that old man. 
but it's not the master anymore because that old man is dead. If he was really crucified with Christ, then the union between the old man and the body of sin has been broken. Now in Christ, there is a brand new union. We might compare it to a a new marriage. If if an old spouse has died and and the living spouse remarries, there's there's a brand new union. There is a new union because there's a new marriage to Christ. Verse 11 tells us that we are to consider ourselves alive to God in Jesus Christ. Why did God crucify us with Christ? So that that old union would be ended. So that that old man would die. That the body of sin would be brought to nothing. Rendered powerless over us. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. The power over sin is broken. The devil can't make you do it. You don't have to sin anymore. Some have likened it to the example of a a dead man in a casket. If we had someone here in a casket, we, we might go up and hit him in the face, but there wouldn't be any anger come from him. He's dead. We might say to him, you didn't get that promotion you thought you were going to get. Your buddy got it. There wouldn't be any bitterness that we'd see in him, no envy of his buddy who got the promotion. He's dead. We might show him some inappropriate images. There wouldn't be any lust spring from his heart. We might take his money. Wouldn't be any reaction because there's no greed, no tight-fistedness in his heart. There's no reaction because he's dead. Well, that analogy breaks down a little bit because, as all analogies do, because that old man is not even tempted to sin. That means we're not tempted to sin anymore. Does the world and the flesh and the devil have no attraction to us anymore? We know better, don't we? We still sin, don't we? The body of sin or that that law of sin that Paul talks about is still present with us in the members of our body. And the body of sin desires to sin. And it wages war against you and me every day, doesn't it? That's why Paul says, in my flesh dwells no good thing. Paul says that he loves God's law and he hates sin. Yet there's still that sin within him that puts forth its influence and tempts him to give in to sinful attitudes, sinful words, sinful actions. But giving in doesn't have to happen because the union with the old self, the old man, is broken. He was crucified with Christ. As a Christian, as a believer in Christ, The new you, your your truest self, the person that you are now, loves and delights in the law of God. It really seeks God. It desires to live a holy life before God. And while sin remains in you with, with some strength 
It no longer controls the new you, the new life. It has no control, but only influence to tempt you to disobey God. But now that sinful behavior goes against your deepest understanding, doesn't it? And that sinful behavior cannot reign in us. Remember, that doesn't mean no sin at all. We will never be perfect on this earth. John says in 1 John 1, 8, that no Christian can ever claim to be without sin. But he goes on to say in chapter 3 that whoever is born of God does not commit sin. That doesn't mean never commit sin. Uh, it does mean a couple of things. Number one, it believes that it means that a believer doesn't practice sin as the main tenor of his life. He doesn't tolerate it without deep regret and remorse. Christians do sin, but the sin grieves them. It repulses them. And it often drives us to a humble confession of our sin before Christ and to true repentance, to a turning from that sin. And John assures us, 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, our God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Number two, I think it means that a Christian ought to, make, ought to be making some progress in battling his sin. I don't think Paul is saying that a Christian doesn't struggle with uh, some habitual sin, but he's saying that you can't go on resting there. He's saying you can't be comfortable there. You can't remain in that realm of sin. We cannot go on abiding in sin. We no longer live in sin. Verse 2. So, what are we to do in this battle against sin, against the flesh, against that old body of sin? Paul gives us some directions for waging this battle. And I'm just going to mention four here. Number one, understand that when you became a believer in Jesus Christ, the battle was won by Christ. You died to sin. Dead men are free from sin. The union between the old you and the body of sin is broken. You are no longer a slave to sin. You're a free man. You're not the person you were. So Paul says, consider yourself, verse 11, to be dead to sin and alive to God. Paul says, reckon it to be so. Count on it having happened. God did that for you. Understand that, beloved. Remind yourself of that every day. Why do we have to consider it so and remind ourselves every day, reckon it to be so, if it already is so? Because we forget. We have to remind ourselves every day of what God has done in crucifying the old man. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We have to preach that new life in Christ. Why? Because if we don't preach it to ourselves, 
We believe lies. God will forgive me, so this sin is okay. Grace covers this sin, so, so this is okay. Well, this is not so bad, so this is okay. I can't help myself, so this is okay. Well, the devil made me do it, so this is okay. Nobody's going to know about it, so this is okay. God wants me to be happy, so this is okay. Every one of those is a lie, beloved. All lies. Every time one of those lies returns to you, return to Romans 6. Remind yourselves and each other. Remind me every day. Remind me of the truth. I'm a new man. I don't have to sin. I'm free in Christ. Free in Christ, by the way, doesn't mean you can do what you want to do. Free in Christ means you have the power to do what you ought to do. Reckon yourselves no longer slaves to sin, but free in Christ. You know, they tell stories about slaves who were set free but when an old master would come by, they would, they would quake and tremble, fearing that he would do something to them or they might be sold again. You might feel like a slave, beloved, but you've been set free. You are free in Christ. You're a free man legally in God's sight. Don't return. Reckon it to be so. Count on it. Number two. Remember that there is a way of escape from sin. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, you know very well. No temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above that you are able, but will, with the temptation, make a way of escape so that you may be able to bear it. He has provided a way of escape for you. A, he's provided prayer. Ask him to deliver you from evil. Lead you not into temptation, but deliver you from evil. He's provided his word. Memorize verses that will help you when you are tempted to sin, just as, de as Jesus did with Satan's tempta temptations. And he has provided feet for you to run. Flee from sin, Paul says. Avoid those situations where you are likely to fall into temptation and be tempted. Run at the first sign of temptation. God has provided the power of the resurrection for you to live your life every day. Number three, remember his grace. Titus 2, 11 and 12 says, grace has appeared training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You can't live that kind of life on your own. 
God knows that. You're not expected to. He's provided the power of the resurrection for you, for a new life. His grace is with you. And number four, remember your deliverance. Hebrews 2.15, he has delivered those who were subject to lifelong slavery. Colossians 3, Colossians 1.13 says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, the power of darkness. As a result of that, Paul can say in verse 14, which we didn't get to, sin will not have dominion over you. Sin cannot have dominion over you. It cannot rule over you. God has provided the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. So Paul goes on to say in verse 12, then don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Paul would not tell us not to let sin or not to let sin reign if God hadn't provided the power. You don't have to obey sin. Sin cannot force itself on you. So, beloved, Jesus says to us the same thing that he said to that woman caught in adultery that day. I do not condemn you Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Because he has provided the power. The power of the resurrection. Well, we've talked a lot today about being in Christ. One of my, one of my favorite songs is a song that we sing now and then in Christ alone. One of the lines in that song toward the end says, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. And then here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Stand there, Christian. Stand in the power of Christ's resurrection in you. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for what you have done for us and in us. We thank you for the power of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and that we don't have to let sin reign anymore. Would you cause us to live that out every day? Would you cause us to stand in the power of his resurrection? And it's in his name we pray. Amen.